This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at area code 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. History of the Westminster Assembly of Divines by William M. Hetherington. As read by Leah Domes. Tape number two. From the time of the convocation in 1562, the disagreement between the court divines and those who wished for Reformation became gradually more and more decided. It may be expedient briefly to examine the views entertained by these two great opposing parties. The main question on which they were divided may be thus stated. Whether it were lawful and expedient to retain in the external aspect of religion a close resemblance to what had prevailed in the times of popery or not. The court divines argued that this process would lead the people more easily to the reception of the real doctrinal changes when they saw outward appearances so little altered so that this method seemed to be recommended by expediency. The reformers replied that this tended to perpetuate in the people their inclination to their former superstitions, led them to think there was, after all, little difference between the Reformed and the Papal Churches, and consequently that if it made them quit Popery the more readily at present, it would leave them at last equally ready to return to it should an opportunity offer. And for this reason they thought it remaining as possible. It was urged by the court party that every sovereign had authority to correct all abuses of doctrine and worship within his own dominions. This, they asserted, was the true meaning of the act of supremacy, and consequently the source of the Reformation in England. The true reformers admitted the act of supremacy in the sense of the Queen's explanation given in the injunctions, but could not admit that the conscience and the religion of the whole nation were subject to the arbitrary disposal of the sovereign. The court party recognized the Church of Rome as a true church, though corrupt in some points of doctrine and government. And this view it was thought necessary to maintain, for without this the English bishops could not trace their succession from the apostles. But the decided reformers affirmed the Pope to be Antichrist and the Church of Rome to be no true church. Nor would they risk the validity of their ordinations on the idea of a succession through such a channel. 
Neither party denied that the Bible was a perfect rule of faith, but the court party did not admit it to be a standard of church government and discipline, asserting that it had been left to the judgment of the civil magistrate in Christian countries to accommodate the government of the church to the policy of the state. The reformers maintained the scriptures to be the standard of church government and discipline, as well as doctrine, to the extent, at the very least, that nothing should be imposed as necessary which was not expressly contained in or derived from them by necessary consequence, adding that if any discretionary power in minor matters were necessary, it must be vested not in the civil magistrate, but in the spiritual office-bearers of the church itself. The court reformers held that the practice of the primitive church for the four or five earliest centuries was a proper standard of church government and discipline, even better suited to the dignity of a national establishment than the times of the apostles, and that, therefore, nothing more was needed than merely to remove the more modern innovations of popery. The true reformers wished to keep close to the scripture model and to admit neither office bearers, ceremonies, nor ordinances, but such as were therein appointed or sanctioned. The court party affirmed that things in their own nature and different, such as rites, ceremonies, and vestments, might be appointed and made necessary by the command of the civil magistrate and that then it was the bounden duty of all subjects to obey. But the Reformers maintained that what Christ had left indifferent, no human laws ought to make necessary, and besides, that such rites and ceremonies as had been abused to idolatry and tended to lead men back to popery and superstition were no longer indifferent, but were to be rejected as unlawful. Finally, the court party held that there must be a standard of uniformity, which standard was the Queen's supremacy and the laws of the land. The Reformers regarded the Bible as the only standard, but thought compliance was due to the decrees of provincial and national synods, which might be approved and enforced by civil authority. In this point, the view entertained by the Reformers might have been carried to the extent of oppression, but it never could have been very direct and immediate, and was subject to so many checks that it amounted to little more than a remote possibility. At the same time, it is perfectly evident that the true principles of religious liberty and toleration were not understood by either party, and it may be fairly questioned whether, even in the present day, these principles are rightly understood. Such is a brief outline of the direct cause of the conflict between the court party of the English reformers and their brethren who desired a more complete reformation and of the leading arguments used on both sides. It cannot fail to strike every attentive reader that precisely the same conflict is again renewed, both in England and Scotland, and in all its leading principles. So close indeed is the resemblance that it is difficult to peruse the writings of those times without insensibly beginning to think we are reading some of the controversial works of the present day. And perhaps in order to arrive at a full understanding of the real nature and bearing of the present controversies, 
No better plan could be devised than to prosecute a careful study of the writings of the court divines and the Puritans of the Elizabethan age. But to resume, it seems to have been expected by the court party that the proceedings of the convocation and the acts of Parliament, injunctions, and proclamations would speedily produce an entire conformity. In this expectation, they were disappointed. The regular parochial clergy, both in town and country, not only disliked the vestments themselves, but perceived that, in general, the people bore towards these relics of a persecuting and oppressive system at least an equal aversion. Some, indeed, wore them occasionally, in obedience to the law, but more frequently officiated without them. And although the bishops, most of whom, though at first opposed, had become reconciled to the scenic apparel, cited such persons into their courts and admonished them, yet this had little effect, as they had not yet proceeded to suspension and deprivation. At length, information of these irregularities was given to the Queen. Her Majesty was highly displeased, especially on the ground that so little regard was paid to her laws, and gave strict command to the Archbishop of Canterbury to take effectual methods that an exact order and uniformity be maintained in all external rites and ceremonies as by law and good usages are provided for. Footnote. Strip's Life of Parker. Page 155. End of footnote. This severe and peremptory command immediately roused the bishops to activity and, in particular, stimulated Archbishop Parker to such a degree of fierce and unrelenting sternness as seemed completely contrary to all his former life and character. He did his utmost to urge forward Grindal, Bishop of London, to compel the ministers within his diocese to conform though he well knew that the opinions of that pious prelate were not only averse from everything like oppression, but were opposed in particular to the sacerdotal vestments. Parker framed some articles to enforce the habits and requested the queen to give them the authority of her sanction. But the pride of Elizabeth could not endure that the subject should frame articles to enforce her decrees, and instead of ratifying them, she issued a proclamation requiring immediate uniformity in the habits on pain of prohibition from preaching and deprivation from office. And now the storm burst forth in earnest. The whole ministers of London were summoned to Lambeth and the question put to them whether they would conform to the apparel established by law and subscribe their admission on the spot. Those who should refuse were to be suspended immediately and after three months deprived of their livings. Threats, persuasions, and the dread of poverty induced 61 out of 100 to subscribe. 37 absolutely refused and were immediately suspended. And those 37, as their oppressor admitted, were the best and ablest preachers in the city. Footnote. Strip's Life of Parker, page 215. End of footnote. Many churches were at once shut up, the ruling party disregarding the loss of religious principles to the congregations in their zeal to enforce conformity in matters which they themselves admitted to be in their own nature indifferent. After a short interval, many of the most pious and able men 
were ejected from the churches and cast upon the world in a state of utter destitution, even forbid to preach to others that gospel which had been to their souls glad tidings of great joy. Surely it had been a strange and a pretentious thing to see such men as Miles Coverdale, the translator of the Bible, in his feeble and most venerable age, and Fox the martyrologist, whose writings had done so much for the overthrow of popery and the support of the Reformed faith, driven from their homes and weeping flocks, and exposed to reproach and poverty, because they would not consent to disfigure their persons with the gaudy vestments characteristic of Romish superstition. In vain did the oppressed Puritans, for we may now fairly use that distinctive appellation, apply to the Earl of Leicester, the Earl of Bedford, and such other noblemen as were known to be favorable to them, imploring these distinguished men to do their utmost to procure some mitigation of such oppressive measures. No mitigation could be obtained. To conform or to suffer were the only alternatives, and they nobly chose the latter rather than violate conscience. These severe measures adopted by the court party and prosecuted with such unrelenting vigor against their better brethren attracted the attention of the Reformed churches in other countries. The Continental Divines wrote frequently to England on the subject, but without effect. The Church of Scotland, which had been reformed and reorganized on a truly scriptural model by the blessing of God on the strenuous exertions of John Knox, also addressed an earnest and affectionate remonstrance to the English prelates, imploring them to treat their faithful and suffering brethren with greater tenderness, disapproving at the same time of their preposterous attachment to the superstitious trappings of Rome. Footnote, McCree's Life of Knox, page 295. End of footnote. But all was in vain. Brotherly kindness and Christian charity must equally be sacrificed to gratify the Queen's taste for idle pageantry and to cover the mean and self-condemned compliance of her courtly prelates. The ejected Puritan ministers found extreme difficulty in obtaining opportunities for preaching, and some remained entirely silent. Many pamphlets were, however, written by them, which tended to keep alive and spread their opinions, and which were eagerly read by the people. This drew from the Star Chamber a decree, strictly prohibiting the publication of all such writings under heavy penalties. 1566 Thus commanded to conform, even against the dictates of conscience, ejected from their churches and forbidden to preach anywhere else, and deprived of the liberty of the press, the Puritans were driven to that extreme point where endurance ceases and active resistance begins. Accordingly they met and gravely and solemnly deliberated, whether it were not now both lawful and necessary to separate from the established church. After much earnest consultation, they came to the solemn and important conclusion that since they could not have the word of God preached nor the sacraments administered without idolatrous gear, as they termed the vestments and ceremonies, and since there had been a separate congregation in London and another in Geneva, 
in Queen Mary's time in which there was a book and order of preaching, administration of sacraments and discipline, free from the superstitions of the English service, it was their duty in the present circumstances to separate from the public churches and to assemble, as they had opportunity, in private houses or elsewhere, to worship God in a manner that might not offend against the light of their consciences. Footnote. Strip's Life of Parker, page 241. End of footnote. This most important event took place in the summer of the year 1566, and from that time onward, the Puritan party may be regarded as forming a body distinct from the Church of England, although they were the true successors of the first and greatest reforming fathers of that church. It would be a great mistake to suppose that the only subject in dispute between the Puritans and their antagonists was that respecting clerical vestments. That formed, indeed, a very prominent point in the controversy, because it was so apparent and so easily brought under the terms of a royal proclamation. But there were many, and these still more important matters, which they wished to have reformed. Of these, the most prominent were the following. They regarded the assumed superiority of bishops over presbyters as a higher order, and the claim on their part of the sole right of ordination, discipline, and government as unscriptural in itself, intending both to secularize them and to produce an intolerable despotism. Along with this, they complained of the whole array of cathedral office bearers, as of the same character, and equally unwanted. They lamented the want of discipline, in consequence of which it was impossible to maintain the purity of the most sacred ordinances. Regarding set forms of prayer as properly intended to meet the necessities of a time of ignorance, they did not dispute their lawfulness, while they wished a greater liberty in prayer, where such help was not required. And they disapproved also of too many repetitions of responses and of several exceptionable expressions, particularly in the marriage and funeral services. They disapproved of the regarding of the apocryphal books in the church, and while they regarded the homilies as in themselves valuable, they held that no man should be ordained to a ministry who is not himself able to preach and to expound the scriptures. While they complained of pluralities, non-residents, and an unpreaching clergy, they viewed these as caused chiefly by patronage exercised by the queen, bishops, and lay patrons, and held that it ought to be abolished, and ministers to be appointed by the election of the people. They condemned, on the one hand, the keeping of church festivals and saints' days, and on the other, the open and flagrant violation of the Lord's Day, as equally contrary to Scripture. Cathedral worship, chanted prayers, and instrumental music they also condemned, as tending rather to amuse than to edify. And they declared their great reluctance to comply with certain rites and ceremonies which were strictly enjoined and which they regarded as superstitious or unmeaning, such as the sign of the cross in baptism, baptism by midwives, the exclusion of parents and the employment of godfathers and godmothers, the rite of confirmation, kneeling at the communion as implying transubstantiation, bowing at the name of Jesus, the ring in marriage, and certain foolish words used in the ceremony, 
and the wearing of the surplice and other ceremonies used in divine service. When so many in such important topics were all equally in dispute and not the slightest redress could be obtained, but conformity in every particular was enforced with the most oppressive and unrelaxing vigor, it was not strange that the persecuted Puritans should determine to separate themselves from a church which they regarded as but half-reformed and which sternly refused to advance to a more pure and perfect reformation according not to the will of princes but to the word of God. And the time may come when the Church of England will bitterly bewail the insane conduct of those who, in that reforming period, took up and pursued a course which crushed the life spring out of its heart and swathed up the cold and paralyzed remains to lie in state a decent but a dead formality. 1567. The chief leaders of the separation, according to Fuller, were the Reverend Messrs. Coleman, Button, Hallingham, Benson, White, Rowland, and Hawkins, all of whom held benefices within the Diocese of London. No sooner was the Queen informed that the Puritans had begun to form separate assemblies for worship than she commanded her commissioners to take effectual measures to keep the laity to their parish churches, and to let them know that if they frequented conventicles or broke the ecclesiastical laws, they should, for the first offense, be deprived of the freedom of the city, and then abide what further punishment she would direct. But the requirements of conscience are stronger than a sovereign's threats. They continued to hold their private meetings, and on the 19th of June, 1567, they agreed to have a sermon preached and a communion dispensed at Plumber's Hall, which they engaged for that day. Footnote. Strip's Life of Grindall, pages 115 and 135 and 136. End of footnote. The day came and they assembled to worship the God of peace, but their peaceful worship was rudely interrupted by the entrance of the armed officers of the civil power, who seized upon the chief dispersed the rest, and dragged their victims to prison. Next day they were brought before the Bishop of London and the Chief Magistrate of the city, charged with the heinous offense of forsaking the church which persecuted them and setting up separate assemblies for worship. They defended their conduct ably, but because they would not yield, they were, to the number of 24 men and 7 women, sent to Bridewell where they endured the hardships of more than a year's imprisonment. 1571 A Parliament was held in 1571 in which there were some attempts made to procure a further reformation. One member, Mr. Strickland, proposed to bring a bill for that purpose, asserting that the prayer book, with some superstitious remains of popery in the church, might be altered without any danger to religion. Her Majesty was so displeased that she sent for him to the council, reproved him sharply, and forbade his attendance in Parliament. But this caused such an alarm in the House of Commons as a dangerous invasion of their privileges that she found it convenient to remove her prohibition. An act was passed ratifying the 39 Articles, which had been framed by the Convocation of 1562 and one clause in that act admitted the validity of ordination by presbyters alone, without a bishop. Footnote. 
in none of the manuscript copies of the 39 articles, either as passed by the Convocation of 1562 or as ratified by the Parliament of 1571, is the clause in the 20th article to be found, by which the Church of England claims the power to decree rites and ceremonies. It must have been surreptitiously introduced afterwards by some of the prelatic party, without civil or ecclesiastical authority. See Historical and Critical Essays on the 39 Articles, pages 277 to 279. End of footnote. This clause was greatly disliked by the bishops and has been repeatedly condemned by their successors, but remains still unrepealed. The House of Commons were desirous also that articles of discipline should be framed and enacted. But when this was discountenanced by the bishops, they presented an address to the Queen, representing the grievous injuries sustained by the Church and Kingdom for want of truth and efficient discipline, supplicating Her Majesty that proper laws might be provided and enacted for the reformation of these abuses. But the Queen dissolved the Parliament without answering this supplication. Although little was done in the Parliament to relieve the oppressed Puritans, some steps were taken by the Convocation which tended to increase their oppression. A canon of discipline was framed, empowering the bishops to call in all their licenses for preaching, and to issue new licenses to those only whose qualifications gained their approbation, and among the qualifications specified, subscription to all the points of which the Puritans complained was particularly mentioned. These canons were not sanctioned by royal authority, but the bishops, knowing well the Queen's inclinations, did not hesitate to enforce them with great rigor. Numbers of the Puritan divines were immediately deprived of their licenses to preach because they refused to subscribe canons not yet legalized and it became apparent that a formidable crisis was at hand. At the very time that the bishops were thus silencing the persons whom they themselves admitted to be the best preachers in the kingdom, the state of religion throughout the country was truly deplorable. Of this stripe, no Puritan presents the following outline. The churchmen heaped up many benefices upon themselves, and resided upon none, neglecting their cures. Many of them alienated their lands, made unreasonable leases, and wastes of their woods, granted reversions and avowsons to their wives and children, or to others for their use. Churches ran greatly into dilapidations and decays, and were kept nasty and filthy and indecent for God's worship. Among the laity there was little devotion. The Lord's Day greatly profaned and little observed. The common prayers not frequented. Some lived without any service of God at all. Many were mere heathens and atheists. The Queen's own court, an harbor for epicurists and atheists, and a kind of lawless place because it stood in no parish. Which things made good men fear some sad judgments impending over the nation? Footnote. Strip's Life of Parker, page 395, end of footnote. Perceiving that there was no prospect whatever of any further reformation in religious matters, 
proceeding from either the sovereign or the convocation and lamenting the wretched ignorance and immorality which prevailed in the kingdom, the Puritans now resolved to exert themselves to the utmost of their means and opportunities for their own instruction and that of their perishing countrymen. And as Dr. Scrambler, Bishop of Peterborough, was less intolerant than many of his order, the ministers within his diocese, particularly those of Northampton, with his approbation and that of the mayor of the town, formed an association for promoting the purity of worship and the maintenance of discipline. The regulations of this association were very temperate, involving no departure from any of the established modes of worship, nor any rigid disciplinary arrangements. And as they were aware of the extreme inability to preach instructively, which characterized very many of the clergy, they endeavored also to provide a remedy for this evil. For this purpose, they instituted what they termed prophesyings, taking the designation from 1 Corinthians 14.31, Ye may all prophesy one by one, that all may learn, and all may be comforted. In these prophesyings, one presided, and a text previously selected was explained by one of the ministers to whom it had been assigned. After his exposition, each in turn gave his view of the passage, and the whole exercise was summed up by the president or moderator for the day, who concluded by exhorting all to preserve in the discharge of their sacred duties. Footnote, Strip's Life of Grindal, pages 175 and 176. End of footnote. This scheme, it is evident, was admirably calculated to increase the scriptural knowledge and promote the usefulness of the clergy who engaged in it, and it deserved the cordial approbation of all who were desirous to promote the religious welfare of the community. But it was regarded with jealousy by the bishops, and ere long encountered the keen hostility of Elizabeth herself. 1572 when the Parliament met in 1572, an attempt was made by the House of Commons to mitigate the sufferings of the Puritans, and they passed two bills for that purpose. This gave such offense to the Queen that she sharply reproved them for interfering in such matters and commanded them to deliver up the bills. One of the members boldly complained of this conduct as trenching upon the liberty of Parliament and for his boldness was sent to the tower. The Puritans, who had reason to expect some countenance from the Parliament, prepared a full statement of their grievances and their desires in a treaty entitled An Admonition to the Parliament. But while the Parliament was not permitted to grant any redress, the authors of the admonition were cast into prison and treated with great severity. Whitgift was appointed to answer the admonition, and Cartwright answered Whitgift, which led to a lengthened controversy between these learned and able men. Each, and still more eagerly the partisans of each, claimed the victory, but the controversy did not terminate with the writings of these antagonists, nor is it yet terminated. It is waged in the present day with equal keenness and not inferior ability. It may be added with no novelty in its leading principles and very little in its arguments. Cartwright maintained that the scriptures were not only the sole standard of doctrine,
but also of discipline and government, and that the Church of Christ in all ages was to be regulated by them. Whitgift held that the scriptures were a rule of faith, but not designed to be a standard of discipline and government. That this was changeable and might be adapted to the civil government of any country, and that the times of the apostles could not be the best model, but rather the first four centuries of the church, during which she had reached a matured development. In what do these views essentially differ from the advocates and opponents of patristic theology in the present day? Till men agree in some leading principles by which any great controversy must be ruled, it is vain to expect that it can ever be brought to a satisfactory conclusion. Yet those who appeal to scripture authority alone must surely be held to be following the most proper and authoritative method in discussions of that nature. All hope of legislative assistance in prosecuting further reformation being cut off by the Queen's arbitrary procedure, the Puritans resolved to take another step, still more daring and decisive than any on which they had previously ventured. Several of the ministers of London and its vicinity met together and determined to form themselves into a presbytery to be held at Wandsworth, a village on the banks of the Thames about five miles from the city. On the 20th of November, 1572, about 15 ministers met. Eleven elders were chosen to form members of the body. Their offices were described in a register entitled the Orders of Wandsworth, and this was the first fully constituted Presbyterian church in England. Footnote, Neil, Volume 1, page 198. Collier, Volume 2, page 541, end of footnote. The intelligence of this event soon reached the bishops. The court of high commission took alarm. The queen issued a proclamation for enforcing the act of uniformity, but the Presbytery of Wandsworth for a time eluded the fury of their enemies, and other Presbyteries were formed in neighboring counties. There was now little possibility of reconciliation between the high church and the Puritan parties, for the unbending determination of the former not to grant the slightest relief to the sufferings of their brethren, nor the least accommodation to their aggrieved consciences, had driven them from mere nonconformity into the adoption of a different form of church polity, possessing in itself the elements of perpetuity and growth. Puritanism had thenceforth not only a vital principle, but also systematic organization, enabling it to live on and increase in spite of any amount of persecution. For a system dies not with the individuals that held it, but draws into itself the fresh life of succeeding generations. Having thus traced the rise of Puritanism and seen its systematic organization, it will not be necessary to follow its progress so minutely in what remains of this introductory outline. We shall content ourselves with touching briefly on the main events which mark the growing development of the leading principles characteristic of the two contending parties. The sufferings of the Puritans continued unabated during the remainder of the life of Archbishop Parker, many of them being silenced, imprisoned, 
banished, and otherwise oppressed by that relentless prelate. In vain did the House of Commons and several influential noblemen repeatedly interpose in their behalf. They were detested by the Queen, and Parker was ready to gratify Her Majesty without scruple and to any extent. In particular, he strove to suppress the prophesyings, declaring that they were nests of Puritanism, and by his complaints he succeeded in directing against them the vengeance of a despotic sovereign. He did not, however, live to direct the storm which he had raised, but died in May 1576 and was succeeded by Grindal. Grindal, aware of the opposition to the exercises or prophesyings which had been raised by his predecessor, attempted to regulate them so that no offense might be taken, or at least that they might be the more easily defended. But the Queen had formed her resolution, from which she could not be moved by the most respectful and elaborate arguments, and the most humble entreaties of the afflicted Archbishop. She declared herself offended at the numbers of preachers, and also at the exercises, and warned him to redress both, urging that it was good for the church to have few preachers, and that three or four might suffice for a country, and that the readings of the homilies to the people was enough. In short, she required him to do these two things, to abridge the number of preachers, and to put down the religious exercises. Footnote. Strip's Life of Grindal, page 221. End of footnote. This peremptory command both grieved and alarmed Grindal, who knew the excessive ignorance which prevailed both among the preachers and the people, and was anxious to promote whatever tended to the increase of religious knowledge and purity. He wrote to Her Majesty a long and earnest letter, entering fully into the subject, pleading the importance of preaching as the divinely appointed method of communicating religious instruction to the people, showing how admirably these exercises were fitted to improve the ministers who joined in them, and consequently to qualify them for the discharge of their chief function. And after imploring her not to suppress so valuable an institution, and stating his readiness to resign his office, if that were her pleasure, declared that he could not, without offense to the majesty of God, send out injunctions for suppressing the exercises. To this solemn appeal, the Queen's answer was, an order for the imprisonment of Grindal in his house, and his suspension from his function for six months, and an immediate suppression of the prophesyings by the authority of a royal proclamation. Such were the fruits of the crown's ecclesiastical supremacy, when possessed by a despotic monarch. It may be added that Grindal had the firmness to maintain his integrity for eight years, during which his suspension continued, and his archiepiscopal functions were generally performed by a commission. But at length he yielded so far as to suppress the exercises within his own jurisdiction, though he would not issue injunctions to that effect to the bishops. Unhappily, it was not necessary. They were in general but too ready to obey the arbitrary commands of their haughty and despotic sovereign. 1580. 
A few years afterwards, another development of regal and prolatic tyranny appeared in an act passed by the Parliament of 1580, prohibiting the publication of books or pamphlets assailing the opinions of the prelates and defending those of the Puritans. In the same session of Parliament, another act was passed, one portion of which empowered the infliction of heavy fines and imprisonment upon those who absented themselves from church, chapel, or other place where common prayer is said according to the Act of Uniformity. The apparatus of persecution was now nearly complete, and the pernicious character of the Crown's ecclesiastical supremacy was sufficiently evident in at least its main aspect, although it subsequently reached a far more terrible degree of persecuting intolerance. These harsh and oppressive measures had, however, as might have been expected, an effect the very reverse of that which their authors intended. Some of timid and wavering minds might be terrified and subdued, but the bolder and more high-principled men became only the more determined in proportion to the severity and intolerance of the treatment which they had to encounter. In their indignation, they began to entertain feelings and opinions from which they would have shrunk had they not been driven to extremities. Ceasing to complain of popish vestments and ceremonies and to supplicate a further reformation, some began to question whether the Church of England ought to be regarded as a true church, and her ministers true Christian ministers. They not only renounced communion with her in her forms of prayer and her ceremonies, but also in the dispensation of word and ordinance. The leader of these men of extreme views was Robert Brown, a person who held a charge in the Diocese of Norwich, whose family connections gave him considerable influence and procured him protection, he being nearly related to Lord Treasurer Cecil. Brown appears to have been a man of hot and impetuous temper, rash and variable, except when opposed, and then headstrong and overbearing. Throwing himself headlong into the Puritan controversy, he traversed the country from place to place, pouring out the most fierce and bitter invectives against the whole prelatic party, and also against all who could not concur with him in the rude violence of his mode of warfare. After repeated imprisonments and many attempts to form a new party, he at last partially succeeded in collecting a small body of like-minded adherents, but was soon afterwards compelled to leave the kingdom and to withdraw to Holland with a portion of his followers. There he formed a church according to his own fancy, but it was soon torn to pieces with internal dissension, and Brown returned again to England and exhibiting one of those recoils by no means rare with men of vehement temperament, he renounced his principles of separation, conformed to that worship which he had so violently assailed, and became rector of a parish in Northamptonshire. The remainder of his life was by no means distinguished by correctness of deportment or purity of manners, and at length he terminated his unhonored days in the county jail in the 81st year of his age. 
Footnote. Neil, Volume 1, pages 245 to 247. Fuller, Volume 3, pages 61 to 65. End of footnote. From this person, the first form of what has since been termed the independent or congregational system of church government appears to have had its origin, the great majority of the Puritans either retaining their connection with the Church of England and the species of constrained half-conformity or associating on the Presbyterian model. Brown not only renounced communion with the Church of England, but also with all others of the Reformed churches who would not adopt the model which he had constructed. The main principles of that model were that every church ought to be confined within a single congregation, that its government should be the most complete democracy, and that there was no distinction in point of order between the office bearers and the ordinary members, so that a vote of the congregation was enough to constitute any man an office bearer, and to entitle him to preach and to administer the sacraments. Those who adopted these opinions and formed congregational churches on the same model were at first termed Brownists, and were regarded by the main body of the Puritans with nearly as much dislike as they were by the Prelatists. In stating that the independent or congregational system of church government may be said to have originated with Robert Brown, it is not meant that those who at present adhere to that form of ecclesiastical polity are Brownists, as that term was applied at first, but merely that Brown appears to have been the first who actually, in the formation of a church, embodied that idea and that, too, in much more rigid and repulsive form than it subsequently assumed, when again taken up and reconstructed by wiser and better men. But it is of importance to mark beginnings, especially when these teach lessons of great practical value. One of these may be here very easily learned. The extreme pertinacity with which the Queen and her obsequious servants, the bishops, strove to enforce entire conformity, produced an antagonistic principle, whose very essence was direct antipathy to their eager wish, rendering it forever impossible that their purpose could be accomplished. Another remark may be made, the system devised by Brown was, in its first appearance, altogether as intolerant, both in principle and in practice, as that of its opponent, prelacy. But in the stern strife which afterwards ensued between these equally intolerant antagonists, they so far neutralized each other as to give occasion to the gradual, though even yet incomplete, development of the great principle of religious toleration, a principle utterly unknown to any party at the time, even while its rainbow form was beginning to bend its gentle radiance across the thunder gloom of their contention. 1583. The death of Archbishop Grinnell gave the Queen an opportunity of promoting to that influential station which he had held a person more according to her own mind, who would feel no compunction to proceeding to extremities against the Puritans. Her choice was easily made. Whitgift had already distinguished himself by his controversial writings against Cartwright and was well prepared to enforce by power what he had failed to accomplish by argument.
Scarcely was Whitgift placed in his seat of power when he began to show how that power would be used. He drew up and published three articles requiring that none be permitted to preach or execute any part of the ecclesiastical function unless he should subscribe them. These articles were to the following effect. First, the Queen's supremacy over all persons in all causes, civil and ecclesiastical. Second, that the Book of Common Prayer and of Ordination contained nothing contrary to the Word of God, and that they will use it and no other. Third, implicit subscription of the 39 articles. Footnote, Neil, Volume 1, pages 260 to 263. Fuller, Volume 3, page 68. End of footnote. The Puritans would readily have acknowledged the Queen's supremacy over all persons, and in all causes civil, but not in causes ecclesiastical. The second article they could not subscribe. The third they were ready to subscribe with little difficulty. But they were all rigidly enforced, and in a short time several hundred of the best ministers in England were suspended for not subscribing. Not thinking even this sufficient, Whitgift applied to the Queen to institute a new High Commission, that he might be enabled to wield a direct and irresistible power. She readily consented and even gave to it an additional element of despotism, empowering the commissioners to impose an oath ex officio, by means of which persons accused were bound on their oath to answer questions against themselves and thus become their own accusers, or to be punished by fine or imprisonment for refusing to take such an oath or to criminate themselves. The prelatic inquisition was now complete in its apparatus, and Whitgift was well qualified to act as the Grand Inquisitor. 1584. The work of oppression went on now rapidly. Mercy to preachers or people there was none. Elizabeth's wisest statesmen stood aghast when they beheld the desolating effect of Whitgift's measures, but they interposed in vain. Cecile, Burleigh, and Walsingham had less influence with the Queen than Whitgift, because their advice was but accordant with the dictates of prudence and Christianity, his with those of vanity and despotism. When Parliament met, the House of Commons attempted to stem the tide of persecution, and having received several petitions from the Puritans, they prepared various bills to abridge the power of the bishops, to reform abuses, and to promote discipline. But with considerable dexterity, Whitgift suggested to the Queen that if the Parliament were to pass any such measures, they could not be repealed by any other authority. Whereas whatsoever she should herself or by the convocation enact, her own authority could at any time repeal. Footnote Life of Whitgift, page 198. End of footnote. Elizabeth welcomed the suggestion. She reprimanded the Commons for interfering with ecclesiastical matters, which was touching her prerogative, and they were compelled to yield. 1586. The Puritans, thus driven from all legislative remedy, yet regarded it as their duty in their character of Christian teachers to exert themselves to the utmost 
for their own improvement and for the instruction and reformation of the ignorant and neglected people. They accordingly formed a book of discipline for their own direction in the discharge of their ministerial and pastoral duties. And this book was subscribed by above 500 of the most eminently pious and faithful ministers in the kingdom. Footnote. Neil, Volume 1, pages 314 and 315. End of footnote. This body was far too numerous and important to be easily or wantonly crushed. And yet, as Neil informs us, it constituted in reality but a small portion of those over whom the terrors of suspension at that period hung, amounting to not less than a third part of the ministers of England. 1588. A new principle was now promulgated for the support of prelatic power of a more formidable nature than any that had hitherto appeared and destined to produce the most disastrous results. Dr. Bancroft, the Archbishop's chaplain, in a sermon which he preached at Paul's Cross, January 12, 1588, maintained that bishops were a distinct order from priests or presbyters and had authority over them, juro divino, and directly from God. Footnote. Life of Whitgift, page 292. Collier, volume 2, page 609. Neil, volume 1, pages 321 to 323. End of footnote. This bold assertion created an immense ferment throughout the kingdom. The Puritans saw well that, if acted upon, this principle would increase their oppression to an incalculable degree, inasmuch as it must subject them to an accusation of heresy, in addition to that of resistance to the Queen's supremacy. The greater part of even the prelatic party themselves were startled with the novelty of the doctrine, for none of the English reformers had ever regarded the order of bishops as anything else but a human institution, appointed for the more orderly government of the church, and they were not prepared at once to condemn as heretical all churches where that institution did not exist. Whitgift himself, perceiving the use which might be made of such a tenet, said that the doctor's sermon had done much good, though for his own part he rather wished than believed it to be true. On the other hand, the legal asserters of the Queen's supremacy assailed this theory as subversive of Her Majesty's prerogative. For, as they reasoned, if the bishops are not under governors to Her Majesty of the clergy, but superior governors over their brethren, by God's ordinance, it will then follow that Her Majesty is not supreme governor over her clergy. Bancroft answered that this inference was not a necessary consequence of his doctrine, because the sovereign's authority may and very often does corroborate that which is primarily from the law of God. This evasive reply seems to have satisfied the Queen, aided perhaps by her own knowledge of its direct purpose and of the character of her bishops, who longed for the extirpation of Puritanism but had no desire to encounter her leonine wrath. The terrific power of this despotic principle did not, indeed, appear till after the lapse of two generations, when, wielded by Laud, it convulsed the kingdom and overthrew the monarchy.
Its portentous reappearance in modern times may well excite alarm, embodying as it does the very essence of despotism, civil and religious, and possessing an energy that nothing human can control without a struggle, wide, wasting and deadly, too fearful even to be imagined. 1589 the struggle assumed a less serious aspect for a short time, in consequence of the publication of the famous Martin Marr prelate tracts. Some of the Puritan party had procured a printing press, the liberty of the press having been taken away previously, and commenced the series of pamphlets containing attacks of wit, ridicule, mockery, and keen vituperation against the bishops and their supporters. Many of these tracts displayed very considerable power of sarcasm and invective, and as they were written intentionally for the mass of the nation, they were composed in a style not merely plain, but effectively rude and vulgar. They were not, however, to be despised. Amidst much coarse vituperation, they contained statements of facts which could not be disputed, set forth with such home-thrusting vigor as caused every direct and strong-aimed blow to tell upon the assailed prelates. Great was the indignation and dismay of the bishops and their friends, and every exertion was made to detect and seize the hidden armory of this unseen assailant. For a considerable time these efforts were unsuccessful, and the prelatic party was constrained to attempt their own defense in literary warfare. But although they displayed considerable talent and activity in this attempt, they were not able to match their unknown antagonists, whose writings produced a deep and widespread impression on the public mind. At length, the Martin Mar Prelate Press was seized with several unfinished tracts, and that aspect of the struggle was terminated, but not till the prelatic cause had sustained very considerable injury. In the year 1591, the Parliament again met, and the House of Commons once more attempted to rescue the suffering Puritans by instituting an inquiry into the conduct of the High Commission in imposing oaths and subscriptions not sanctioned by law. The Queen was highly incensed, commanded them not to meddle with matters of state or causes ecclesiastical and threw several of the members and even the Attorney General into prison. The Parliament, with a tameness unworthy of the spirit of free-born Englishmen, not merely yielded, but passed an act for the suppression of conventicles, by which was meant all religious meetings, except such as the Queen and the Bishops were pleased to permit, on pain of perpetual banishment. The principle of this act was of the most despotic nature, converting any difference from the religion of the sovereign into a crime against the state, and rendering the mere want of conformity equivalent to a proof of direct opposition. Great numbers were subjected to the most grievous sufferings through this enactment. Some went into voluntary exile to escape the horrors of imprisonment. Some endured a lengthened captivity, and then were banished, and some chiefly the brownest, were condemned to death, and on the scaffold declared their loyalty to their sovereign, while they ceased not to testify against the tyranny of the prelates. 1595. 
The controversy between the high churchmen and the Puritans obtained the full development of all its main principles in the year 1595. At this time, Dr. Bound published a treaty on the Sabbath in which he maintained its perpetual sanctity as a day of rest equally from business and recreation that it might be devoted wholly to the worship of God. Footnote, Fuller, Volume 3, pages 143 to 146. End of footnote. All the Puritans assented to this doctrine, while the Prelatists accused it as both an undue restraint of Christian liberty and an improper exalting of the Sabbath above the other festivals appointed by the Church. About the same time, a controversy arose in Cambridge respecting those doctrinal points which form the leading distinctions between the Arminian and the Calvinistic systems of theology. Till this period, there had existed no doubt in the minds of any of the English divines that the 39 articles were decidedly and intentionally Calvinistic. Indeed, they could have no other opinion, because they were perfectly aware how much influence the writings of Calvin exercised over the minds of those by whom these articles were framed. After the controversy had prevailed in the university a short time, an appeal was made to Whitgift, who, with the aid of other learned divines, prepared nine propositions, commonly called the Lambeth Articles, to which all the scholars in the university were strictly enjoined to conform their judgments. Footnote. Fuller, Volume 3, pages 147 to 150. End of footnote. These Lambeth Articles were more strictly Calvinistic than Calvin himself would have desired, and certainly proved that, in its earlier period, the Church of England was anything but Arminian, whatever it may have since become. But though Whitgift was himself still a thorough Calvinist, considerable numbers of the prelatic party were veering towards Arminianism, so that, partly on that account, and partly on account of their more strict observance of the Sabbath sanctity, the Puritans were now led to a more important field of conflict than that on which they had hitherto striven against their antagonists. And instead of contending about vestments and ceremonies, they now strove respecting great and important doctrines and began to be termed doctrinal Puritans. This led to two directly opposite results. It caused the Protestants to swerve more and more widely from those doctrines which the Puritans maintained, and it impelled the Puritans to prosecute a profound study of those points, which had thus become the elements of controversy. This may account for the remarkable power and accuracy with which the Puritan divines of that and the succeeding generations state and explain the most solemn and profound truths of the Christian revelation. At length, what may be termed a cessation of hostilities ensued. The queen was now evidently sinking under the infirmities of age, and both parties began to speculate upon the probable measures which might be adopted by her successor, James VI of Scotland. The Puritans hoped that his Presbyterian education might predispose him to be favorable to their views, and the prelatic party were unwilling to exasperate, by continued severity, 
those who might possibly, ere long, be the ruling body in the church. Both parties paused, at least in action, but there is no reason to suppose that their feelings of mutual jealousy and dislike were abated. Nor was it consistent with the usual policy or kingcraft of James to declare his sentiments and intentions, but rather to hold out plausible grounds of expectation to both parties, thereby to secure the support of both, or at least to disarm the direct hostility of either. 1603. Queen Elizabeth died on the 24th day of March, 1603, in the 70th year of her age and 45th of her reign. In the following month, James left his native land commencing his journey to London to take possession of the English throne, to which he was now the direct heir. On his progress southward, the Puritan ministers availed themselves of the opportunity to lay before him what is commonly termed the millinery petition. This name it did not receive because it was signed by 1,000 ministers, for the actual number was 750. But because in the preamble, it is said by the petitioners that they, to the number of more than a thousand ministers, groaned under the burden of human rites and ceremonies and cast themselves at His Majesty's feet for relief. That their number was not overstated is evident from the fact that the petition was subscribed by the ministers of no more than 25 counties, chiefly those of the northern, westland, and midland parts of the kingdom so that probably not more than one-half of the Puritan ministers had an opportunity of signing their millinery petition. Footnote. Fuller, Volume 3, page 172. Collier, Volume 2, page 672. Neal, Volume 1, pages 371 and 392. End of footnote. On the other hand, the prelatic party were at least equally strenuous in their endeavors to secure His Majesty's favor, and as might be expected from their practice courtier arts and ready obsequiousness were more successful. But as James had given a friendly reception to both parties, and as he was vain of his own acquirements in theology and of his skill in polemical discussions, which he wished to exhibit to his new subjects, he felt proper to appoint a conference between the two parties to be conducted in his own presence as final judge in all such matters. This gave occasion to the famous Hampton Court Conference, an account of which was afterwards published by Dr. Barlow, Dean of Chester, one of the disputants on the prelatic side. The Puritans complained that Barlow gave a partial account of this conference representing the prelatic arguments in the best manner of which they could admit, and weakening and abridging those of the opposite party. Even from the outline given by Fuller and Collier, this is evident, and yet so futile are the arguments of the king and the prelates that one is ashamed to read them as reproduced by their own historians. In Barlow's own treaty, which is now lying before me, the mean and abject servility of manner and the gross and fulsome flattery of language employed by the prelates towards James are such as to cause the cheek of every person of generous and manly nature to burn with indignant scorn. 
A very brief account of this conference is all that can be given here. The place appointed for this conference was a drawing room at Hampton Court. On the high church side, the disputants were the Archbishop of Canterbury, Whitgift, Bishops Bancroft of London, Matthew of Durham, Bilson of Winchester, Babington of Worcester, Rood of St. David's, Watson of Chinchester, Robinson of Carlisle, and Dove of Peterborough, Deans Andrews of the Chapel, Overall of St. Paul's, Barlow of Chester, and Bridges of Salisbury, and Dr. Field and Dr. King. On the part of the Puritans, there were only four ministers, Dr. Reynolds and Dr. Sparks, professors of divinity in Oxford, and Mr. Chatterton and Mr. Newstubs of Cambridge. The first day was a conference between the king and the prelates, in which His Majesty praised the Church of England and expressed his wish for satisfaction on a few points in the prayer book, respecting excommunication and about providing ministers for Ireland. By this, an opportunity was given to the king and the prelates to form a mutual understanding before they encountered their opponents. On the second day, Dr. Reynolds stated, in the name of the Puritans, and in the briefest possible form, the points on which the controversy chiefly turned, humbly requesting, one, that the doctrine of the church might be preserved in purity, according to God's word, two, that good pastors might be planted in all churches to preach the same, three, that the church government might be sincerely ministered according to God's word, four, that the book of common prayer might be fitted to more increase of piety. Footnote, Hampton Court Conference, page 23. And a footnote. Had these points been fairly discussed, the whole controversy might have been investigated, and some approximation might have been made towards an agreement, or at least a pacific arrangement, between the contending parties. But the king interrupted, reviled, and stormed. The courtiers laughed and mocked, and the prelates, by insinuations, interruptions, flatteries addressed to the king, and sneers directed against the Puritans, succeeded in preventing such a discussion as would have brought out the great principles of the controversy, and in assisting to overbear the Puritans with insult and ridicule. The king repeated his favorite maxim, No bishop, no king, and at the close of the day asked Dr. Reynolds if he had anything else to offer. He, perceiving the futility of continuing such a discussion, answered, No more, please, Your Majesty. Then said the king, If this be all your party have to say, I will make them conform, or I will harry, spoil, them out of the land, or else do worse. The greater part of the third day's conference was occupied by the king and the prelates in matters relating to the High Commission the oath ex officio, and the slight alterations proposed in the prayer book. Of all these, the king expressed his approbation, and then the Puritan divines were again called into this mock conference. They now knew that no alterations, such as they had desired, would be obtained, and therefore they contented themselves with supplicating some concessions in point of conformity 
in behalf of those ministers who could not in conscience submit to the rites and ceremonies of the church. The king sternly declared that they must conform, and that quickly too, or they should hear of it. Thus ended the Hampton Court Conference, which, says Dr. Warner, convinced the Puritans that they were mistaken in depending on the king's protection, which convinced the king that they were not to be won by a few insignificant concessions, and which, if it did not convince the Privy Council and the bishops that they had got a Solomon for their king, yet they spoke of him as though it did. Footnote Ecclesiastical History, Volume 3, page 482. End of footnote. Even this does not fully express the extravagant strain of adulation in which they spoke. The Archbishop of Canterbury, Whitgift, said that undoubtedly His Majesty spake by the special assistance of God's Spirit. Bancroft, Bishop of London, upon his knee protested, that his heart melted within him with joy and made haste to acknowledge to Almighty God the singular mercy we have received at his hands in giving us such a king as since Christ his time the like he thought hath not been. Footnote, Hampton Court Conference, pages 93 and 94. End of footnote. Little wonder that the vain and pedantic monarch was delighted with his bishops. 1604. In the convocation which met in 1604, Bancroft presided, Whitgift having died a short time previously. Soon after they met, Bancroft laid before them a book of canons, collected out of the articles, injunctions, and synodical acts passed in the reigns of Edward and Elizabeth, to the number of 141. To these canons, both houses of convocation assented, and they were ratified by the king's letters patent, but not confirmed by act of parliament, so that, though binding on the clergy, they have not the force of statute laws. Of these canons, about three dozen are expressly directed against the Puritan opinions, rendering their junction with the church impossible without sacrifice of conscience and one of them requires that no person be ordained or suffered to preach or catechize unless he first subscribe willingly and ex animo the three articles already mentioned as Whitgift articles. Bancroft was promoted to the Archbishopric of Canterbury, vacant by Whitgift's decease, and immediately proved how well qualified he was to discharge the function of Grand Inquisitor. He enforced subscription to canons and articles with the utmost vigor, silencing or disposing those Puritan ministers who refused to comply. Considerable numbers were thus reduced to the greatest distress, and some were driven into foreign countries to escape from persecution in their own. And that the archbishop's persecuting zeal might obtain as full a sanction as could be given to it by a partial and one-sided process, the king summoned the twelve judges to the star chamber, and in answer to three interrogative propositions, obtained as their legal opinion that the king, having the supreme ecclesiastical power, could, without parliament, make orders and constitutions for church government, that the high commission might enforce them, 
ex officio without libel, and that subjects might not frame petitions for relief without being guilty of an offense finable at discretion and very near to treason and felony. Footnote, Neil, Volume 1, pages 416 and 417. End of footnote. This strange opinion ascribed to the king power in ecclesiastical matters of the most arbitrary and despotic kind without limitation or redress, and as the enforcement of it necessarily required the exercise of civil power in the infliction of punishment, it deprived one large class of subjects of all liberty, civil and sacred, and if allowed in one class, might naturally introduce an equal exercise of despotism over every other. This may be regarded as perhaps the first distinct intimation to the kingdom at large of the peril in which civil liberty was placed by the arbitrary proceedings of the sovereign and the prelates in religious affairs. And it is not undeserving of notice that it was founded on the opinion of civil judges, who in their interpretation of law were the subverters of the Constitution and the destroyers of both civil and religious liberty. By means of the authority thus acquired, the prelates urged on their persecuting career with double eagerness and severity, and the Puritans became, in consequence, so much the more determined in their adherence to their principles. Not merely suffering, but calumny of the grossest kind was their portion and ambitious churchmen found that the readiest road to preferment in the church was to pour forth violent invectives and dark aspersions against the detested Puritans. As an answer to these reproaches, and to vindicate their character, the Puritans published a treaty entitled English Puritanism, which Dr. Ames, better known by his Latinist name Amesius, translated into Latin for the information of foreign churches. It contains a very full and impartial statement of the peculiar opinions of the much calumniated Puritans, and ought to be enough to vindicate them in the judgment of every candid and intelligent person. 1610. The violent proceedings of the prelatic party and the dangerous nature of the principles avowed by them began to arouse the kingdom to a sense of the danger to which all liberty was exposed, and the Parliament prepared to interpose and to seek redress of the grievances which were becoming intolerable. But the king met all their remonstrances and petitions for redress with the most lofty assertions of his royal prerogative, in the exercise of which he held himself to be accountable to God alone, affirming it to be sedition in a subject to dispute what a king might do in the height of his power. The Parliament repeated the assertion of their own rights, accused the High Commission of illegal and tyrannical conduct, and advocated a more mild and merciful course of procedure towards the Puritans. Offended with the awakening spirit of freedom thus displayed, the king, by the advice of Bancroft, dissolved the Parliament resolving to govern, if possible, without parliaments in the future. This arbitrary conduct on the part of James aroused, in the mind of England, a deep and vigilant jealousy with regard to their sovereign's intentions, which rested not till, 
In the reign of his son, it broke forth in its strength and overthrew the monarchy. 1616. When the Puritans found not only no hope of redress, but a constantly increasing severity of treatment, many of them, as has been stated, fled to the continent, and there continued to discharge their sacred duties as they could find opportunity. Embittered somewhat by the persecution which they had suffered, and constrained to minister in congregations not united in any common body, several of them began to adopt the opinions at first taught by Brown, to the extent, at least, of regarding the congregational or independent as the best system of church government, though not, like him, to the extent of denying the lawfulness of any other. Of these, Mr. Henry Jacob was one, who, having fled to Holland, became acquainted with Mr. Robinson, pastor of a congregational church at Leyden, and embraced his system. Returning to England in the year 1616, Mr. Jacob imparted his views to several others of the suffering Puritans, who, considering that there was now no prospect of a thorough national reformation, resolved to separate themselves entirely from the Church of England, to unite in church fellowship, and to maintain the ordinances of Christ in what they had come to regard as the purest form. They met and in the most solemn manner declared their faith, pledged themselves in a mutual covenant to each other and to God, to walk together in all his ordinances, as he had already revealed or should further reveal them, chose Mr. Jacob to be their pastor, elected deacons, and thus formed the first congregation of English independence. Such and so small was the beginning of a body which afterwards became so powerful and influenced so strongly the movements of the revolutionary period. Footnote. Neil, Volume 1, pages 461 and 462. End of footnote. Please continue listening on tape number 3.